Good morning, everyone, unless you're in Australia, in which case, good evening. Um, this is a interestingly timed ERB podcast episode coming out to you. Um, interesting because we've managed to secure the services of a foreign correspondent. Um, we've got Mitch all the way from Oz. Welcome, Mitch. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ed. Um, I was going through my Skype messages and realized last time I used Skype was for our Rock Inspectors episode a while back, I think, with uh, Matt, Ben, and we had a few others there. So it was, um, yeah, it was good to see my Skype usage and, and good to get another episode under the belt, I think, um, chatting rugby with you. Yeah, no, very glad to have you on. I always appreciate the um, foreign insights. We, we can get a bit locked into our South African hole sometimes. And as much as we try to avoid the opinions of certain South African journalists, um, you know, there does seem to be some, 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 sometimes like that pervasive uh, pro-South African bias seeps into your viewpoint. So it's always good to get balanced out. Um, yeah, Matt did actually, was keen to join and then misread the invite at 7 p.m., not 7 a.m. South African time. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, unfortunately, he won't be joining us, but we do have Andrew on the line. Hey, Ant. How are you doing? Good morning. Yeah, good, thanks. How's the weather up in Joburg? You're not getting blown away. No, beautiful weather up here. Spring is definitely here. And uh, I think it's just great to be on the pod where we've actually got the prediction right for once, even though we were <laughs> we were a little more reserved than we needed to be. But uh, we'll get into that. But we, we, we're clawing back some sense of integrity and sensibility. <laughs> um, and, and the best part is we can't be wrong this weekend. So uh, it's, it's all to play for. Good <laughs> job. Um, Speaking of that, I think we can jump straight into the matches. Um, it's been a bit of a, a roller coaster of emotions, it seems, both on the field and for fans. Uh, obviously, Australia quite comprehensively beating South Africa last week, only for us to return its favour this week. Um, but you can see the, the on-field emotions were very, very highly charged. Um, I don't think I've seen... I mean, the, the memes of Etzebeth's eyes have been doing the rounds, and I certainly don't think I've ever seen them being dashed higher. Um yeah, so Mitch, I mean, we'll start with you, considering we didn't get your feedback from last week. Um, what was the, the kind of the feeling in ours after last week's game? And how, where do you think it kind of turned around and went wrong for them this weekend? It was very interesting because um, we, we sort of had a good track record against South Africa on Australian soil. And so after the win last week, I thought, oh, well, that, that's good. We've, um, you know, we, we've finally managed to have things click despite having a few of our first choice players out. And it seemed to look like Rennie had found his, you know, replacement at 12, replacement at 10. Um, and I didn't think they were spectacular, but they just sort of did the the basics quite well and you were able to capitalise on good counter-attacking opportunity. And really, I think the only reason we were able to get that win in the end was just some reasonably good um, goal line defence and maybe a little bit of luck with sort of penalties and um, advantages that uh, the Springboks had close to our line because they were sort of parked in our 22 for most of the first half. So to come away with, you know, that lead still was, was really massive um, for the Wallabies. There's a stat from Matt Alvarez who's posted, I think, that, you know, in the three times we've actually had the lead, you know, sort of um, recently we, we've got the win, but in the 11 times that we haven't, we've only won one of those. So mm -hmm. the Wallabies really had us a confidence team that they managed to do quite well once they've got um, a bit of ascendancy and they can take that into the second half, but they really struggled to claw back. Um, and, and this week I think we sort of saw the – the downside to that so it was relatively tight the um the Kane and Moody try was like fantastically taken but you know just sort of extended it to a nine point deficit at halftime um and and we named a 6-2 split to try and make up for that but uh, yeah we just 
with the amount of injuries we had, we had players sort of all over the place and, you know, we, we just couldn't string anything together. And I think that the injuries in playmaking positions coupled with the fact that the box were just so aggressive in their uh, defence and just completely dominated us in every collision. Um, there was just no room for our backs to get the ball. And really, other than the consolation try from Pete Samu, I think it was probably the, the most that Australia have just been completely nullified. You know, it, it was a really impressive display by the Springboks to just, you know, work out that they only had to target probably three or four key players um, and we weren't really going to be able to get over the line. So, yeah, it, it's a massive back to the drawing board sort of situation. But as we were sort of talking before recording, the Southern Hemisphere teams are so inconsistent that, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we come away and, you know, get a 10-point win over the All Blacks next uh, match. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be surprised about that at all. I mean, I was just kind of thinking about that as you were saying, that like, how does the team go from being, like the Springboks, being so outplayed, at least on the scoreboard last week, to, you know, dominating here uh, this weekend? And this is exactly the same for Argentina. I mean, they were comprehensively the better side last weekend, and then obviously taking 50 this weekend is <laughs> just the competing. Yeah. So, like, who is, where, where are teams actually lying in terms of their strengths and in terms of, like, relative global uh, rankings? It's, it's a very, very weird topic. Um, but, yeah, I, it's good to see that the Springboks can bounce back. Um, I think the, the old adage of the Springboks need to have something to fight for, their backs against the wall, always applies here. Um, you know, kind of last week, maybe didn't get out the gears as aggressively as they needed to. And, obviously, after last week's... Uh, on-field um, stresses around the, the Corbett tackle and Nick White's moustache. Obviously, the, the players had something to get up for. Um, yeah, what did you make of their kind of aggressive response this week, Andrew? Well, I think that was it. Like, Sia Kulisi came out in the media this week and said, like, we know that you guys are hurting and, and we're hurting too. And I think the, the coaches used that motivation to... To get the players up for this one, I mean, the, yeah, as Mitch says, they were so aggressive and just so pumped up to to um, to get the win, the, the rare win in Australia. And we had a whole lot of changes to the team, um, but I don't think it upset us too much. Um, we had a bit more creative spark and game line ball from Damien Willemso, who I'm sure we'll, we'll get some airtime to just now. But uh, the guys really got up for it. Um, they... The execution was much better, but far from flawless. Um, again, Damien Willemse is a good indication of that. He, he had a great game. He, he really was a lot more unpredictable, which took some of the defensive heat off Damien De Allende. I thought to um, then was was not as pressured by the Aussie backline because they, they couldn't trust what the man inside of him was going to be doing. Um, but he also had some very wayward kicking. Uh, his goal kicking was definitely not on form. Um, in contrast to Franz Stein, who hit about the sweetest touchline conversion we've ever seen. Um, and, yeah, the, the, it was just great to see that the box came together and, and fought for something again. I think that's, that's South Africans love to fight for something. And um, some of the guys took that quite literally. Um, and Mapumpi got a yellow for, for standing over Karebi, which I thought... In, in the greater context, was fair enough, but maybe in the context of the game, did deserve a yellow. Um, yeah, the, the, the box just came back and, and has the, the passion and the fire, and that's that's really what got them there. But I think last week, I saw enough from the Springboks to see that there was there was the potential there to 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 win over in Australia. The guys did a lot of things right, but then there were there were individual moments of uh, brain fades and lapses of judgment and decision making that. 
that really let them down and let Australia back into the game. And Australia, to their credit, took took um, advantage. And and this week the guys were just tighter. We we used our opportunities, especially in the second half. I think for a lot of the first half we dominated, but it was still seven nil or seven three. Um, and, and the box couldn't get away. And I was a bit worried because that was the situation the second quarter last week where we just absolutely dominated territory and possession and, and play and didn't get the rewards for it. And this week, um, the guys did manage to do that. Um, although it wasn't kicking for threes, actually. It was scoring tries this week. So, yeah, a great turnaround by the box. And I, I just don't know what to expect when we go over to Argentina. Are we going to get... The first week against the All Blacks Argentina or the second week against the All Blacks Argentina because they were very, very different teams. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's interesting. I wonder when the last time the box won a test without kicking a, a penalty. Um, I'm sure someone can pull that up somewhere because, yeah, it is interesting to collect points only in tries. But look, I'm not against that if that's the direction we're heading in. Um, but speaking of that, that deadlock that we're facing, um, and then eventually broken by an incredible kick chase try by Moody. Um, you know, throw this one to Mitch here, but did you know anything about Moody kind of going into this game? And, you know, what was your kind of impression of him as one of the players on debut? Trying to keep up to date with um, the South African players in the URC. So I've been missing uh, their inclusion in Super Rugby. I was probably one of the few Australians that, you know, was really um, enjoying the likes of the Sharks and the Lions in particular in the last sort of few years. Um, of Super Rugby and just wanted to see like how they'd cope with the new competition. So um, I had seen bits and pieces from Moody. There were a few highlights reels going around as well, but I'd seen that he was you know, reasonably quick, quite solid in defence. And, um, you know, while he didn't probably have quite the same sort of pedigree as um, Kurtley Aarons before um, the debut, he was still very you know, well known to, I think, a, a select few Aussies that were keeping an eye on him. So um, I, I, was, I was excited to see how he'd go. I really thought um, before the match that, Aerially, he was going to have the wood over Corin Betty just by being, you know, what, 15 centimetres taller than him or however much it is. But I did think that in every, every other aspect, I really thought that Corin Betty was going to be able to, you know, um, sort of manhandle him a little bit. I, I know he's a strong um, strong young man, but he, he's still a teenager. And Corin Betty's just got that sort of that dad strength, you know, just from being around the blocks for so long. So yeah. um, I, I did I did think that um, given the opportunities, Corin Betty would be able to get around him. But you just saw a little bit of sort of, whether it was limping or just not quite full speed from Corin Betty. And with that Moody try, like he didn't even get in the air. Moody completely got over him, um, read the situation perfectly. And it was just one of those situations of, you know, as experienced as you can be, sometimes just that raw athleticism, you, you can't really match it much the same as what we've seen with sort of like Freddie Stewart, um, who sort of burst on the scene as just this, you know, immovable aerial threat. So, um, no, I, I definitely thought Moody was going to be um, – more of a handful than most would expect for a debutante. He did a great job. Um, the experience on the bench, I thought, was going to be the big thing for the box, but they didn't even need it. They just had such a commanding start with, you know, the dominance of that pack and um, backs that were actually, you know, looking for space and quite exciting with um, Valencia and LaRue sort of leading the charge. So, um, yeah, it, it's interesting to see a team with that many changes look as good as um, they did. But I thought it all clicked quite well for the back one. Yeah, I mean, I think that was going to be the, the big test going into this game was <clears throat> how well do we handle, particularly the change at 10 with, with Willemster coming in. Um, you know, I think the other guys, Villy's obviously been playing in and out of 15 most of the season. Um, Creels, despite not playing 13 recently, has been, you know, in the squad for what, seven or eight years now. So I think there was, there was maybe less concern there. Um, 
but yeah, it, it was great to see Moody look so assured and confident in his debut and, you know, be confident and keen to go after those, those big takes. Um, but the, the box do just look a much more settled attacking team with Vili coming in at 15. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they balance Pollard, Villanta and, and Vili going forward to get all three of them on the pitch if that is if that is a possible possibility. Um, Andrew, did you make did you manage to get to see much of Creel on the field? Um, he wasn't all that involved. Um, I think he did what he needed to do, but he he didn't have that much of an attacking opportunity. They used him as a, an alternative runner to Dallander in the second half. Um, sort of a Dallander would run a dummy line and, and Creel would hit the get hit um, with a ball. So. They did try and include him a bit later on, but he he just sort of played his role. Um, he, he wasn't there to to break the game. He was just there to defend his channel and distribute when needed. Um, but most he didn't really have to distribute that much outside him. I think the ball to the wings was mainly kick chasing and and getting those back. Uh, but he, he didn't really put much of a foot wrong, I thought. Um, but a player coming coming off a concussion and, and almost no rugby. I mean, he got like what, three minutes against New Zealand before he went off concussed. Um, so I think they, they didn't want to send too much traffic down his lane. Um, one of the things just with the centre partner, Dallin, that I thought which which was good is last week, Australia just rushed up on him because it was just predictable that Pollard would shovel it on to Dallinda to run up to the line. And this week he played a lot more off the nine straight off. Um, so they couldn't get that same line speed and you've got to keep the, the back foot of the ruck. So um, Dallinda had, had some much better front foot ball and, and then um, other Damien Willemser could play off that uh, momentum instead of playing from you know a platform behind where the advantage line was. So I thought that was a good change. Yeah, I think the unpredictability that Willemser brings at ten is very useful for the Springboks, as you say. It does kind of just hold up that um, line defence a little bit, and he's got that ability that when things get a bit loose or the defence gets up in their face, he can kind of just step himself out of trouble to an extent. There are a couple of replay or highlight clips going around of him just kind of dancing his way around in front of the poles and just waiting until something can happen. Um, so it's a nice kind of get-out-of-jail-free card he's got available there. Um, I just want to touch on something that, that uh, Mitch mentioned earlier, which was the 6-2 split. We've seen South Africa use that in the first couple of tests of the year and not quite suffer as a result, but, I mean, have multiple backline injuries kind of per game, having to bring on be- uh, bench players out of position um, as similarly now, this has happened for us. What do you think, like, going forward, the best way to counter that is? I mean, is it something like keeping a France Dane or a Reese Hodge on the bench, guys that can just cut off full, full backline positions? Or is, do you think it's just the risk is just not worth it? It comes down to the quality that they're bringing up. So for me, South Africa, when they, you know, first sort of introduced the bomb squad sort of notion, it was because they had world-class um, forwards on the bench. So, like, if you've got the ability to bring in, I think, what, 2019 would have been um, Archie Snyman, Mostert, uh, Quokka Smith, you know, like, they are really world-class. They would start for a lot of other test teams. So I think the ability to have those come off the bench is worth, um, you know, having one less back. And if you do have a front stain, then I think it's really justified. Um, for Australia, we'd need to do that with Resolge if we were to do that. But at the same time, I don't think we've got world-class forwards to bring off the bench. Um, I, I really like the inclusion of Pete Simon. I think he's, you know, one of the best bench options available. But um, between Darcy Swain and Rob Liotta, who've been the other two sort of forwards used, 
I, I don't think either of them are, you know, like that monstrous or that impactful coming off the bench that we can sort of build a game around having, you know, all these extra forwards come off in place of backs, especially when, uh, even though it might mess up the team a little bit in terms of what they're trying to do attack-wise, Australia is probably more renowned for having more attacking backs than they do for having dominant forwards. I'd probably stick to the 5-3 yeah. for Australia just so we can capitalise on, you know, maybe against a tired defence, you can bring on a Jordan Pataya or a Lalakai Fakedi, someone that could bend the line a little bit more or create a bit more of a threat. Um, I've never really seen the benefit to having um, all of Swain and Leota and Samu come on. I, I think you get the same just from having one lock and Pete Samu. Uh, all of that could change, you know, if we develop a different option. I know there's pretty big wraps on Nick Frost as a sort of lock and blindside option. He's quite dynamic. Uh, Lange Gleeson at the Waratahs, he's made into the squad. And he is a dynamic bull runner, even though he's quite untested. Um, if we do find another forward that's sort of in that mould and can ascend to that uh, sort of world-class status pretty quickly, um, I think Simon would have only had about 15 caps or so by the time he was, you know, one of the mainstays on that bench. But if we can get someone quite developed quickly, the 6-2 works. Um, but to me, I think you lose a lot more by having Hodge as your only back reserve or, you know, Callaway as your only back reserve um, when we've got the sort of talent at our disposal. I think that's a very good point is, is looking at which plays you've got can, that can be impactful. And as you say, South Africa are blessed with a huge number of forwards that can come on and just explode themselves into the game, whereas we don't exactly have the backline players that you can inject into a team and they can change the dynamics in, in a couple of plays. Whereas Australia, on the other hand, very much do. You know, I mean, Even someone like a Bunavalu or like, you know, you've got mm-hmm. lots of really exciting backs that you can bring on and make them kind of to make a moment of magic or something. So it's, yeah, so limit yourself to not have those types of options. And especially if you've got someone like that that might be a bit hotter of coal or a bit hit and miss, you want an insurance option alongside them. So you really do want to have three backs on the bench. And so it's, yeah, it's interesting to see how well this kind of gets played out. I mean, even us, we've been playing with a 6-3, I mean, sorry, 6-2, but, you know, as you say, without Snaim on around, with Marks potentially starting, uh, which we'll get to in a minute, it does limit that impact our bench is bringing a lot of the time. You know, if you have, say, Dwayne coming off the bench, he's not the type of player that's going to damp his authority on the game in the last 20. He's kind of a, a grinder from the start, really. So, yeah, I mean, I just want to quickly touch on the impact of Dwayne um, and, and get Andrew's input there uh, off the bench. Um, but then I want to really want to focus on the big debate that we've had in South Africa, which is should Marks be starting or not? And this weekend, we got a great look at what he can do if he just plays for 80 minutes. Um, so yeah, the two questions I'll throw to Andrew, and which you're welcome to obviously step in whatever you want, is what did you think Dwayne brought from the bench? And, and do you think Marks for 80 minutes is, is the forward the answer going forward? Yeah, I was I was skeptical of Dwayne <clears throat> on the bench for reasons you've mentioned and that we discussed at length last week. Um, he is getting older and, and can't offer the same energy of a quaka, but um, he, he can be part of asserting that initial physical dominance before he gets pulled for a livelier uh, bomb squad member. Uh, and in, in this case, I actually think he acquitted himself quite well. Um, maybe the fact that he didn't have to to go for 40 minutes. I think he, he came on for, what, about 20 or 15 minutes? So, uh, I mean, even a, even a 36-year-old grinder knows that he can go balls to the wall for 15 minutes. So, <laughs> um, and the, and the, game was, the game was sort of not in a, a situation that was particularly volatile like South Africa basically secured the win we were having to defend a fair bit um, and uh, the line did eventually crack but he had the the context to come in and 
and play his game. And I think he actually did all right. Um, he, did, he did better than I expected. But as we said, like the, the test stage is not somewhere to play yourself back into form. Um, so I sort of disagree with his selection on a fundamental level, but I think his performance actually was pretty good. Um, and your second question was? Um, well, let's just, just pause there and just, I mean, did, what is your kind of feeling around Wayne, uh, Mitch? Do you think he's passed it? And the same as the same goes for Franz Dane, I suppose. I mean, did either of you, apart from his beautiful touchline conversion, did you see Franz Dane doing anything particularly interesting coming off the bench? I think um, Vermeulen definitely still has the capacity to perform for the box. He's just time and again, like the players that play with him and against him, you know, cite him as just being, you know, the absolute monster when it comes to still being able to get gain line carries when needed. Um, it's hard to bring down, but it, as Squidge has pointed out, sort of ad nauseum, it's doing those sort of background roles like the um, defensive organising. He really protects rucks um, in a way that I don't think a lot of other um, test teams have an eight that can do that. Uh, I know as much as Rob Valentini gets talked up for his, you know, running game in Super Rugby, he doesn't have that same presence anywhere near what um, Dwayne can still do. So I also think there's a lot of benefit for him. But for saying, I, I don't think there is. I think he's, you know, incredibly skillful, and we didn't get to see enough of him for the box. He could have had another 50 caps easily. Um, but the the challenge is, like we saw in that first test when he came on, it's really hard to be that age and an outside back um, that's required to be, you know, uh, performing all these skills at that speed um, with that sort of precision, especially when it's not something that he's doing week in, week out. Like he, because of his age, he does get a lot more rest for, um, uh, or will get a lot more rest for the cheaters than a lot of other teams probably would for their fullback or, you know, utility back. So, yeah, to me, I, I think there's definitely enough exciting options to be deploying outside of Francine. But, um, you know, for the time being, there really is that buzz around having old, experienced heads in the groups. You know, they've seen, um, England brought back Danny Kerr. We brought Quade Cooper back. All, all these teams are just really, um, you know, trying to get the players that have that experience back in the frame. And now we've seen the Wallabies even call on Foley. So for me personally, our friends saying shouldn't play another test for the box just because I think they've got exciting options elsewhere. But, you know, if for the time being they just need someone reliable to help facilitate a 6-2 split, is a good option. If they're going 5-3, I don't think you should be near the team. Yeah, I think that's fair, and especially if they they're looking at Willems, um, Billy is more of a bench option. You know, you've got that experience there. Um, you you, you kind of don't need the front stainless as much potentially, um, but yeah, I suppose it's just the benefit that he does cover so many positions. But I think the yeah the question mark around his pace and dynamicism is uh, a very very valid one. Um, but yeah, we can throw back to the previous question, which was. Yeah, can marks go the full 80 week in, week out the spring box? And do we need to keep bringing um, a hooker on it at, at 45 minutes? Um, yeah, I think that's probably been thrown back to me. So, uh, yeah, he, he had a phenomenal game. And he's obviously proven now that he can go the full 80. I mean, the, the fact that they felt... Uh, the spring box always talk about, the coaches always talk about having emptying your tank and then the sub comes on. Um, and... The fact that they let Dion Ferri come on for Sio Kodisi at six, um, playing open side, uh, rather than replacing Marks, means that they felt that he still had the energy energy to carry on for the full 80. Um, so the coaches believe he can, and you know he's proven that he can, and he's performed to that level now over a full 80 minutes. Um, we know that he can be devastating off the bench, 
And I think once Bongi and Bonambi uh, comes back, I think we will go back to Bongi starting and and Marks on the bench. I think it, it balances out the play. Um, and I think you can't... It's great to have one superstar, but rugby is a game where injury is... It's just an injury-prone game. And if you have your first choice go out and you haven't been giving your second choice the confidence and the minutes, um, then you're in trouble. So I think we needed to, to test out Weber. And we gave him, I think, three opportunities to to stamp his mark on on the the, the Springbok squad, and he's failed to do that. Um, Bongi's undisputed second choice, and I think we may either they're going to stick with Dweber and hope he comes right, um, playing for the Stormers in the URC, or we're going to be looking at who is who is our alternative third option, and uh, the options are fairly limited in terms of experienced players, so we have to be a a young guy like a Johan Krobola or something like that. Um, but yeah, Marx, Marx is world-class. He has been talked about in the realms of the best hooker in the world for some years now. And if we need him to go the full 80, he can. And it's good that we know that. But I don't think it's good for his management or the management of the squad to do that week in, week out. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, it, it's always important to keep your squad rotating. Um, but yeah, it's... At the same time, it's nice to know in the bank that if we do push comes to shove, we can play into the full 18. He doesn't drop off too much in terms of impact. But speaking of like kind of selection and consistencies at hooker, um, Australia's had a bit of a revolving door there for the last probably like eight years now, post-2015. There really hasn't been an out-and-out first choice. Um, lots of guys coming in being touted as the next big thing. You're looking at guys like Tulelatu or um, Jordan Ulysses. Now, I mean, obviously, not in the squad at all. Um, you've got you know, Dave Barecki coming in and making his debut, but now playing playing off the bench. You've got Falafa Inga, who's obviously a try machine for the Brumbies, but sometimes seems to struggle to replicate his form at international level. <laughs> Mitch, where do you see the future of kind of Australian hooking going? Is there, are there young guys coming through that they can kind of just throw the, the, um, the mantle to, or is it worth kind of just juggling time between the four or five guys that have been in and around the squad this year? a real struggle as you point out since Dave Rennie's taken over we've had 11 different hookers in our squads um, and the crazy thing is like a, a lot of teams will you know bring in players but maybe not give them games I'm just getting acquainted out of those 11 nine of them have had minutes um, and it's just a lot of players to be you know cycling through the two jersey especially when I think only three or maybe four of them have started um, to me last year was a bit of a wasted opportunity so we gave caps to Connell McInerney and Fletty Kaito and now they're not in the squad at all um, we've got the age-old issue of the Brumbies. That, you know, last year they had four Wallabies hookers. Um, now that Pollard's been capped, so it's actually a good thing that um, Flowerfinger is going to the Western Four. So hopefully that, you know, um, helps give the Brumbies hookers a bit more opportunity. But to me, I, I don't really see anyone that's been consistent um, at Test level. The, the closest we've had is probably Dave Parecki. I think he's, um, you know. For a start, he's the eldest out of the lot, so he's, he's got the experience under the belt having played across Europe and um, a few stints in Australia. But he, he's also probably the safest in that he doesn't have as many erratic uh, line-out errors. He does have a pretty good combination um, when packing down at scrums with Angus Bell, who's obviously going to be quite um, big for the Wallabies over the next few years. So to me, I'll probably be you know relying on him, but it is a real issue that we've just had so much inconsistency. I think two years ago, we looked at... Um, you know, where do the Wallabies need to focus? And it was developing hookers, developing fly halves, developing fullbacks. Um, and they're the three positions that we're still the least sure of. 
Um, so, so it's a massive issue. We, we haven't had the same revolving door, but um, yeah, for me at hooker, I, I, it's nearly the opposite problem to the to the box. They've got two absolute legends when when healthy, um, and sort of no one in the next cab off the rank ready to step up. Whereas we've got you know, nearly ten options that could do a, a similar job, but none of them are world class. Um, so for me, I think we've got about twenty tests between now and the World Cup. I'd just be trying to get all twenty of them to Dave Parecki where he starts. Yeah, I think that's probably not a bad shot. I mean, Parecki seems like one of those kind of lower ceiling but higher floor type players, where you know he's not going to do something like match winning like Marx can potentially, um, but you know he's also not going to drop off and do incredibly silly things. Um, concede, concede a lot of uh, penalties or throw multiple skew lineups. Um, you know, so that that might be the better option to throw your hat in for for the starting role for the World Cup. Um, but I think you you did mention the two other positions that have actually got jotted down here that we want to get your input on, which is fly-off and fullback as well. Um, but it does again just seem to be a huge amount of yeah indecision. I mean, Nick White's been I'm not sorry, Nick, Nick White, no lot of has been handed you know test caps kind of at random and seemingly always against the biggest opponents, never against the kind of minnows or relative minnows where he can kind of build some confidence. Um, do you see Noah as being, well, I suppose especially now with Quaid being injured, I mean, is he the, the guy to lead you guys at the World Cup? Or is there another 55-year-old fullback lurking somewhere in France or Japan, like, I don't know, maybe third division England that you can bring back instead? I think he's, I think it's got to be uh, loyalty at 10. I, I know he sort of stood up for the France uh, series and he did a pretty good job um, this year as well when given, given limited opportunities. I, I know he didn't get the, the test series against England, but I, I think it's a really ingrained issue, um, definitely in Australia, perhaps worldwide, that if a team doesn't win, it's because of the fly half. Um, so it, there's always been that issue. I mean, he's he, he's had a great season for the Brumbies, but the key thing um, there is in the Brumbies, I think he's only fifth or maybe sixth in terms of trices for the team. So he's not your traditional playmaker in a um, in a sense that a lot of teams look for, like, you know, Finn Russell, for example, or Marcus Smith. He, he's not going to be doing all those things that set up plays. They play a lot of Nick White. Uh, they actually get Tom Wright and Ray Simone into the playmaking positions quite a lot. Um, and they both had uh, trices stats that equaled or bettered uh, Lolasio. So um, one of the big things is just coming to grips, I guess, for the expectation that he's not going to be the same as a Quade Cooper because um, that was Quade's big thing as well. So yeah. I, I think we persevere with him. We don't have the time to develop um, any of the young Waratahs fly halves. You know, there's, there's no point getting them, um, you know, minutes now, I don't think. I don't think like, any of them are that superstarish that they're going to, you know, be a test-ready World Cup winning fly half by 2023. No. Um, but at the same time, I don't think there's any benefit in giving caps to Bernard Foley. You know, we, we've seen so much of what he can do. He's played 70 tests and he's been really serviceable. But at this point, so far away from the squad, not being involved with the Super Rugby teams, not having any connection with the current players. Like he might have had limited minutes with Bacchetti at 12 and maybe a few caps with Simon Karevi, even though he was predominantly 13 when Foley played. No, I just don't think there's um, really much benefit in that. I, I think give the keys to Lola CEO and just see what we can do with a 10 that has the full trust of the team. Um, and see how he copes against different teams. You know, he hasn't had the chance to play Ireland or uh, full strength France yet. So we'll get the chance at the end of this year if they pick him. Um, yeah, it, it's very tough. Um, the end of year two last year, um, 
everyone I spoke to just kept sort of pointing out Wallabies were the only team there that didn't have a top 10 test fly half. You know, every other team has one, even two options that are better than our best fly half option. And that's a real issue. Um, you can have can really be fixed. You can have Alton Yankees, Mitch. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll respectfully keep uh, him in Stavkin Shores. Because <laughs> you're not that desperate, yes, for, for a ten. No. <laughs> no, we've we got to go through a few more options first before I'm knocking on his door, I think. But um, <laughs> look, at the moment, the Wallabies kind of are the team that we don't need a flashy 10 right now if we're full strength. You know, Corin Betty and Karevi, if they're both playing, they, they create enough threat and draw enough attention away that our 10 can just be serviceable. And there's actually been a fair bit of um, discussion around Reese Hodges at 10, and I've never really been overly for it because I don't think he's played enough 10 there. Super rugby level, I don't think it's his best position, and I think he still lacks a little bit in terms of uh, a passing game. But he does have a reasonably good record when he started at 10, and he, boot. you know, yeah, for the sake of it, he's a big body, he's got a big boot. He tends to make incredibly safe and, you know, low-risk players. Still, you know, prone to an errant pass and to the touchline or something. But, yeah, I think if we got desperate enough, he, he would be the next option um, coming up. I don't think we need to try and find a, you know, Stephen Larkham, get his boots back on now that he's on Australian Shores coaching. <laughs> I mean, I would look. I wouldn't rule it out, but you know, I think they, yeah. they should definitely look at the, the, the test, the current squad, to find some guys next. And I, I think I agree. Like Hodge, he's kind of in that Ron Stain type mold, Flash Willem. So even like that, you know, he's, that's not what he's there for. He's not there to cover ten. But given his experience, given he has played the position, he's definitely a better option than bringing in, say, I mean, like an Ingomazelu or a Jordan Hendricks on our side, or you know, Ten Edbed or Donaldson on your guys' side. Um, and I think. Just that connection with the players and knowing the systems is probably worth a lot more. My biggest reservation about um, Hodge at 10, and it's the same one I always had with front stand at 10, is if you've got such a tall fly half, the kicking action is so long that they are very susceptible to charge points, which is, you know, not great. It means, you know, you have to sit a lot deeper in the pocket and stuff as a 10. But, you know, that's, again, that, that's that's kind of the trade-off that you make. Um, but it is, a, it is an interesting little thing to note uh, about those players. Um, they are, I suppose there's Pasatoa as an option as well. There's, look, there's no shortage of, of good young flasks in, in Australia at the moment. Um, you know, I, mean, you, well, I suppose you can't even call Mac Hanson young anymore, but I mean, even Mac Mason, sorry, he, but even he's around. There, there are guys there with the talent and ability. Um, but you know, I'm sure we, we have mentioned it at least in the last couple of weeks. I'm sure you've seen the stat as well, but all the kind of under 20s flasks and where they've ended up from whatever it was, 2011 through to 2020. I mean, more than half of them didn't even make super rugby level, and the, the the ones that did are all playing kind of centre and, and fullback. And you know, if you're looking at guys like Hamish Stewart or Carl Godwin and things like that, so there is is a bit of a a hole in in Australian flyer production over the last little while, which is why you've got you know your your Coopers and your Foley's on the one end, and your Lozios and Edmeds and Donaldsons on the other, and kind of no one in between. Um, so yeah, hopefully that's Rennie's systems planning can look after that a little bit. Um, but yeah, the last position that we just want to get your insight on there is, is, is fullback. Um, pre, I mean, obviously with injuries now, it's kind of a bit murkier. But going into the, the season this year, who was your kind of preferred fullback option? Um, was it going to be someone like Pattaya? Um, Where do you see someone like Jock Campbell fitting into the mix? Um, do you reckon you know, Tom Wright is worth assisting with and converting him there? Or do you, you know, use the safe option of Hodge? 
the biggest challenge was that there's been not enough consistency between the Wallabies selections and the club rugby selections. So um, Brad Thorne alternated between Jock Campbell and Jordan Pataro at fullback. It really should have just been, you know, one for the season um, and just keep them there. Um, the same with the Rebels. You know, they had Andrew Kellaway and Reese Hodge both as 15 options, but they didn't really just stick to one the whole season, partly through injuries, partly just through changes. So, you know, out of all the options, well, I think what do we use seven different fullbacks under Rennie. Um, none of them, other than Banks, were playing week in, week out uh, fullback. So to me, that, that's probably been the biggest issue. Um, and because of that, I was leaning on Banks, um, who's made one of the weirdest decisions to head overseas at this time. Because, um, you know, he was a lock for 15 if healthy, but he was also not good enough to get picked from overseas if over there. So, um with that in mind, I think the best talent was Jock Campbell in the sense that he's actually played that position for the longest time. He's 27, so he's been around for quite a while. He's, he's really Wait, just good for basics. He is, yeah, he's, he's, I think, older than people think because he hasn't been capped by the Wallabies and he didn't, uh, you know, he didn't have the traditional uh, schoolboy prodigy, play under 20s, plays, you know, um, that sort of route. Um, so he is quite old and experienced. Um, and he, I think he does a good job at 15 for the Reds. So I would have been pretty inclined to see him. Um, but I, I do get how that has a, a hint of bias with it, given it's my team. Um, <laughs> I, I think for me, the next best option is Andrew Kellaway. And the reason for that is probably because he is one of the safest players going around. I think he just makes really smart decisions. Um, and he's, you know, got a good running game. He, he can kick reasonably well um he grew up playing fullback it's, it's definitely one of his preferred positions and he was just sort of you know made a wing because he was in a team with Israel Folau so he couldn't really shift him but um yeah for me I think he's got probably the best all-round skill set in terms of what we need and it does free up the opportunity to have a Tom Wright if we want that sort of player or a Jordan Pataira a Suliasi Vinavalu on the wing and gives the ability to do a 6-2 split with Hodge on the bench if that's, you know, the, the game plan required. But, yeah, as has happened, you know, sort of each week, Banks played the first test, got injured immediately. Pattaya played three minutes, got injured. Um, Kellaway shifted back there, got injured. Like, there's just been so many, um, yeah, disappointing injuries that have just sort of curtailed what could have been. Um, and at the moment, Hodge, because he's won a few tests at fullback, everyone's seeing him as the answer. He's really impressed under the high ball, I think, the last two weeks. But other than that, I don't think he's really doing enough to sort of justify, um, you know, automatic selection. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's just Hodge's brand is, you know, does the basics well, but it's not going to do anything incredibly crazy to, to win you a game. Um, but it isn't, you know, at least he's a similar sized body to someone like, you know, Freddie Stewart or, or Geordie Bapt, um, you know, where you've got, uh, Kellaway on the opposite end of the scale, you know, just giving up, you know, as you say, 15 centimeters of height is, you know, particularly at, at fullback, is not ideal. Um, but, you know, if you've got better technique or, or just are the best option in, in, given this, the resources, you know, maybe that is something to sustain with. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's, it is interesting where Australia are. Um, you know, I think the comment from our side is that 
when he's had the system for three years now, there is still so much confusion and inconsistency and new players being blooded. Um, whereas at this stage of the World Cup cycle, they really should be a lot more settled. Um, you know, from the Springboks perspective, we kind of, it's kind of understandable given we lost 2020 as a development year, went straight into Lions tour, so couldn't really blood or grow players. So that's kind of why we're having to do it this year. Um, but we've also got that the fallback of, you know, a million players with 50 caps. Um, you know, so we can kind of blood new players around them with potentially a little bit less urgency than, than you guys have been. But yeah, it's, it's not a great place to be in this far or this close to the World Cup, not knowing your, your players. Um, and I suppose that, I mean, to be fair, that, that applies to New Zealand as well. Um, there's as much selection and consistency and uncertainty there about you know, who should be playing where. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a good way to pivot is how is Australia going to do against the All Blacks and the Bledisloe? Are you guys going to win it back this year? Is this the year? I've, I've got no faith of that happening, um, to be honest. <laughs> I think we've got a reasonably good um, opportunity to you know attack some of their weaker points. Uh, I think Ireland, South Africa and Argentina have got a good job of sort of, you know, showing if we bring a bit of physicality, if we can target the breakdown um, and limit their kicking, um, then we can actually put ourselves in a good spot. New Zealand have worked out that their kicking game and their counter game is really what gets them a lot of their points. And um, as we've seen sort of ad nauseum, if you limit them to under 25 points, they really don't win that many of their test matches. Um, so the biggest thing for us is stopping them from scoring because so many times they just blow out scores against us. Um, in terms of what we can do, the big issues for me are um, Lola and Paisami both under injury clouds with the concussions. So I think for some reason we're playing uh, the blood is low in Melbourne on the Thursday night. So that's exactly 12 days. So supposedly the players should be free to play, um, but there is that risk of not being ready in time. So... If they can keep most of the same team, I think we just need to pick and stick at this point uh, and trust the players that are there. And, you know, aside from the freak injuries, trust they can do the job. Because, as you were saying, other than that um, one test against Wales this year, that, that second one, the Springboks have such a settled side and know their best team and know um, their next cap off the rank and that they've got this wealth of experience to draw from. Um on the Australian leg of it, we've got seven players in the current squad that have, you know, more than 50 tests, which isn't, you know, it's not even half of what the box have. Um, but on top of that, Dave Rennie's used 63 players in test matches and he's That's had 89 in squads. Like it's, <laughs> it, it really is crazy. Like 89 different players. It's, you know, at, at some point that's <laughs> more than best, half the... Yeah, you get into the Wallabies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the thing. It, it's, it's more than half the contracted players... Um, you know, in the current setup, I guess. So um, the big challenge is just refining that. And one of the goals I said to, um, you know, some of the Aussie fans in my group chats is if we could just limit it to having 40 players between now and the World Cup, I think that's what we need. We need to, you know, obviously build depth and you've got to have a squad. It's not just about the the 15 and the 23 as, as keeps being proven, but we, we can't just be giving caps out sort of willy-nilly. And, and Looking at the list, trying to wilt it down to 40 players becomes increasingly hard when you look at, you know, do the Wallabies know who their three best locks are? You know, there's so many in rotation. Do the Wallabies know who their fifth prop is? You know, the, the starters in the bench are pretty set, but um, there's not really a known fifth option that seems the best option. So, yeah, to me, 
the All Blacks series, I'd love to get the win. I think we can't get the blood as low because we've got to win two in a row, uh, which we never do against them. Um, <laughs> and th- this series, as weak as New Zealand have looked in some matches, I can't say the Wallabies have looked much better. Um, you know, we've still been inconsistent ourselves and have not put together consecutive tests under Rennie other than that one five-game streak um, that started with the box last year. So, um, you know, 27 tests and to never have consecutive wins outside of those five is, is pretty crazy. Um, so for me, I'm, I'm looking for consistency and I'd love to see a 23 picked that resembles pretty much what we had against the box um, other than switching back to a 5-3 split. Uh, and then just keep that team going for, you know, the next match and hopefully um, throughout the European tour as well, um, other than a few injured uh, players coming back. Yeah, I think that'll be the, the really big thing on the wish list for Australia is to, you know, switch the tables or the balance of, of injuries, is get guys back rather than keep losing them. Um, you know, I think injuries have forced Rini's hand a lot, um, particularly this year in terms of, of um, having to rotate players due to injury. Um, Andrew, what, what do you think Australia's chances are against Australia? Australia's chances against Australia? Um, yes. Well, I mean, <laughs> I don't think it's enemies, to be fair. Oh, no, fair enough. Good good cover-up. Um, yeah, I'd love them to win one. I, I, I sort of agree with Mitch that they probably don't have it in them to win two at this point, and I don't think the All Blacks will let them. Um, I'd love to keep the pressure on Ian Foster without totally putting a cloud over his head again. So one out of two would work for that. Um, unfortunately, that won't mean that they retain, or that it will mean that New Zealand will retain the Bledisloe Cup. Um, so I think Australian fans are, are well conditioned to to uh, that news um, over the last few years. So uh, I think that they can win one. I think the All Blacks are at their weakest they've been in probably a decade. And if there's a win for the taking now is the time um it would be great i, I don't know much if if you you play new zealand in new zealand first or, or in oz uh, but that could definitely factor into things as well yeah, yeah the sure. challenge in melbourne yeah. first and we go to eden park and you know it's just one of the things i keep bringing up is why do we insist on sharing the love like new zealand always go to eden park because they know they win there um under Rennie, we've won seven of our eight tests in Brisbane. Um, well, sorry, in Queensland, because we, we did go to the Gold Coast and Townsville. But in Queensland, we got a remarkable record. Um, whereas in New South Wales, we haven't won any of our last 11 tests. Um, Victoria, we haven't won hardly any of our last, I think, five tests. I think we might have won one. So it, it does um, really strike an issue that every year we play New Zealand in uh, Auckland, whereas we don't give ourselves that same leg up and advantage by going to um, Suncorp. Yeah, it's interesting how different teams rotate matches around. I mean, we're the same. You know, we kind of always play um, New Zealand at Ellis Park or try to, but then you know, the rest of the tests kind of get allocated one each throughout the rest of the country, uh, which does seem to be you know, a little bit random sometimes. I mean, getting you know, putting an All Blacks test up in the Mumbella, which is probably closest to Joburg. I mean, not not that it's close, close, but it's very much out the way. Um, yeah. Whereas you know, you've got a, a a very well-supported stadium in Cape Town or say Durban or something. But anyway, it's interesting how hard teams are allocated. You look on the other side, as you say, New Zealand put a lot of tests in Eden Park uh, and then all the European teams obviously just play at one stadium always, uh, which I always find a bit strange. Like, you know, I mean, England's small, but it's not 
that's more. Uh, there's definitely room to, to put um, matches at, at different stadiums, you know, bring it to the to people a little bit. Um, which is, I don't do it, Andrew, I can't remember, did we speak about that, that the Stormers are going to be playing a couple of games in Stellenbosch and a couple of games in PE this year? Uh, but basically just due to the stadium being double booked for um, with Justin Bieber <laughs> and Monster Track. <laughs> yeah. yeah, not not ideal, but I mean, yeah, nice that, uh, that they do get around a bit. There's obviously a huge support base in Stellenbosch and a good vibe with the students there. And I saw a lot of people from PE saying they're grateful to to have the Stormers performing down that side because there is a big supporter base there along the coast and through the garden route into the Eastern Cape. So not the worst outcome, but just a bit a bit of a sour taste in the mouth after Western Province were basically forced to sell Newlands, which was the oldest functional rugby stadium in the world and had a great vibe. I loved going to Newlands and uh, they had to sell it and move to the, the more commercial Cape Town based or the sort of Seapoint based uh, stadium, Greenpoint based. And now they're they're being shifted around for the likes of Justin Bieber. It just doesn't doesn't gel very well with <laughs> the regular rugby fan. Yeah, I mean to be fair, it's more of the USC's problem in that it took the USC so long to get the fixture list out. So by the time True. the fixture list out, you know, the stadium was already booked for the rest of the year. Um, you know, so yeah, it, it's it's a an issue on the organization of the tournament rather than an issue from Western Province, which is a very unusual thing to say that they're not actually to blame. So for <laughs> some of this management. <laughs> Um, but you know, <laughs> credit where it's due. This this particular problem was not on their heads. But that being said, like I think, I mean, look, it was it was incredible to see how well supported and filled out the stadium was um, throughout the Stormers campaign. Once they opened up to to at least fifty percent and then full stands, um, will would they have filled out the you know fifty five thousand seater throughout the regular season? I'm not too sure about that. I think it, you know the big key question is what do they do with ticket pricing? I I'm fairly certain the province won't heed the lessons they learned uh, last year that cheap tickets equals full stadiums. They'll probably go back to turn around a ticket and get 2,000 people. But bringing bringing the, the matches to smaller stadiums, I think, is a great move either way. Um, you know, I think it's a lot easier to fill out and the visuals a lot better with it. And just, you know, as a result, the vibes are a lot better at, at a um, 3,000 seater you know, smaller stadium like like Stellenbosch is. So it'll be cool to see see what they can do there. Um, but yeah, fortunately, it's only a couple of games, and you know the USC season is fairly long, so it shouldn't shouldn't harm their chances too much. They can t- treat it as like a, a mini tour out in Stellenbosch. Um, yeah, I think that we're about ready to wrap up there. I'm not sure if there's anything else, particularly on the the rugby championship, that you guys want to raise um, before we kind of jump into some news. Uh, I guess the big thing is just who wins from here like I, i'm still scratching my head a little bit as to you know who comes away with this i, I kind of think the springboks are in the driver's seat now i think they can put away argentina twice so um yeah i, I was hoping that we could get two um wins against the box just to give ourselves a chance but i think the wallabies are out of contention uh realistically and, and now it's sort of back to as it should be with the battle for springboks and all blacks for that um yeah for the trophy yeah, I think you, you're probably right there. Um, it, it feels weird. I mean, I suppose, again, on paper, yes, or maybe given like the last five years' form, that should be the case. But as we said, I mean, Oz are as capable of winning half the games as New Zealand are. I, I don't think I can see Oz winning two games against New Zealand back-to-back, um, just given, given one's in Auckland and 
you know, they, as you stated, this and this consistency is a bit too, too rife, but I can very easily see the Springboks dropping a game against Argentina. Um, no, so I really would not be surprised that after, you know, six rounds, all of us have tied on three wins each. And then it just comes down to bonus points and points difference. And in which case, I think New Zealand more likely uh, take the win from that stage. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if Oz get like a 30 23 win one week and then New Zealand win 40 15 the next weekend. Um, you know, and again, to be honest, the same thing could happen to that. Like we could lose a close game and then absolutely blow out Argentina and South Africa. Like that has happened in the past. So it is all, I think, yeah, South Africa and New Zealand are probably the, the, the favorites, but which way it goes between there or if anything else happens in between. I mean, it's, it really is a, a very interesting rugby championship going forward. Uh, and what are your kind of feelings on this? Uh, yeah, I think it's in South Africa's hands now. If, if, if we can stop making silly errors and indiscipline, if we can teach our backs how to approach a ruck from the last man's feet, that'll help a lot. Uh, we gave away a lot of silly penalties against Australia that really hamstrung us and, and halted our momentum. And if we can avoid doing the same thing against Argentina, I think we, we're in the pound seats. My, my only disclaimer there is there was talk right from the beginning of the competition that we're going to be rotating squads for, for the games against Argentina. Guys like Ivan Etzebeth need a break. Um, I think we we obviously had injuries now, so we're going to have different players in in key positions. And I just don't know who we're going to put out there and whether or not they're going to perform because if they haven't played for the Springboks in the last six weeks, um, they're short on game time. So it's just about who who goes out there and if they perform. But I, I tend to agree with Mitch that it's probably in South Africa's hands. Um, and I'd love Australia to get at least one win over New Zealand to make it a bit easier for us. Yeah, I mean, I think that that would be lovely. Um, yeah, the key thing is just that New, uh, New Zealand are ahead with one bonus point already. So that does put a little bit of pressure on us that, you know, the Springboks do need to, to get not just win, they need to win at least one of their games with, with a bonus point. And Australia need to force New Zealand not to, to score too much, uh, which which hopefully is the case. And Australia's defence seems to be fairly solid most of the time. Um, yeah, but I think that kind of covers the rugby championship. And, and you know, there's definitely lots of interesting things um, for the end of your tour coming up. But quickly, just before we wrap up, just want to kind of touch on a couple of news items. Um, preseason in South Africa got underway this last weekend with Stormers, Lions, Bulls, Sharks all kind of kicking off their preseason. Massive extended squads, lots of excitement. And clearly a lot of um, long-term injury players coming back into the fold. Um, and we've seen guys like Kate Wallace are playing for the Stormers. Um, Giuliani Lombard's back into the Lions. So it's, it is exciting to see that there is quite a lot of um, squad depth going ahead, um, which we'll obviously need for the uh, URC and, and Champions Cup. Um, Tambwe got a double in for preseason in France, which is just exciting given... Uh, our outside back continues to seem to score on debut. Rugby World Cup 7s this weekend in Cape Town. Um, hasn't been the most well-publicized event, but should be a party as is always standard. Uh, the biggest news coming out of that is you've got 34-year-old and 2011 World Series Player of the Year, Cecil Africa, coming back into the African squad. Um, he's been playing MLR in the USA, and so it's going to be interesting to see what he can bring in. Um, you know, this, the 7s have been a bit up and down this year. Uh, winning Commonwealth, for example, but then losing the series the next weekend in, in LA. So hopefully they can have a really strong performance. Um, and finally, it looks like the rumors, uh, well, not finally, the, the rumors are that um, Lukanya Am is going to be out for the rest of the year. So that does put a lot of onus on, on Jesse Creel, 
uh, to cover a 13 and maybe to identify third choice back up there. Um, but probably the most interesting news or potentially worrying news is the news that Yuri Ru is, is set to to exit his position as CEO of South African Rugby. Um, sounds like there's pressure from governmental parties to to get him out the job given you know, the issues he had uh, from his appointment of Marty's days. Um, from what it sounds like, uh, SA Rugby still give him his full support, but as I said, it's political pressure to, to have him exit the job. It's not ideal timing um, before the World Cup. And personally, you know, I mean, say what you like about the guy, he's probably is a bit of a dodgy Stellenbosch <laughs> mafioso, <laughs> given, given his track record. But he does seem to have rugby in South Africa at his highest priority. I mean, all the money he embezzled at the time as Mar- at Marty's was still for the benefit of the rugby club. Um, you know, so he's probably not the nicest human, but at least from a rugby perspective, he's probably not the worst thing for South Africa. Um, but I think that that wraps us up and we're out of time. So, yeah, I just want to say a massive thanks to Andrew for joining us on a very early Monday morning um, and a really big thanks to, to Mitch for, you know, connecting from across the ditch or the, the, the very big ditch, not the little New Zealand ditch. Um, <laughs> thanks, guys. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, Mitch. It was great having you on. Uh, some, some really cool perspectives and great to have a fellow rugby lover from, from a different background join us. Really added a lot. Thank you. Cool. Thanks, guys. Cheers.